0: Well, today we start an Advent series like we do almost every Christmas. I grew up in a household my mom would, uh, around this time of year, uh, four Sundays prior leading up to Christmas Day, she would sit us in a living room and say, we're doing Advent together, and there'd be a little devotional time. We'd talk about it. There'd be like the, if you grew up in one of these, there's an Advent wreath. In the wreath, there's four different candles, and you'd light one for each Week or each Sunday, he'd start on Sunday and then like that for that week, <clears throat> which introduced us to the most important part of our Advent time together, which was who got to blow out the candle, which child got to do that, and there was so many fights about that, and I must have ingrained that somehow into the life of my kids because we attempted to sit down this week and get a little head start on Advent as well. And we didn't even train them to do this, but they began fighting over who could blow it out. And then they just didn't want to wait because it wasn't their turn. So then they would just blow it out. And so it forced each of us, my wife and I, to just grab them and we're doing Advent together and talking about Jesus and his love for us. (laughs) Being a punk during this time, Grayson. Anyways, um, So that's uh, that's that's what we're doing. We're we're gonna we're gonna light candles, um, but uh, each each week leading up to it will be. Kind of a thing, and then Christmas Day is the one that you light in the middle, and that's how Advent thing works. Um, if you are interested, I want to mention this. If you're interested in doing sort of an Advent thing at home with your family, um, my wife found a fantastic resource from a church out of Texas who's doing one. that's like an app on your phone, and you can do one for the uh, for you and the kids, or if it's just adults, or if if you're single or whatever, then there's something. Uh, and it doesn't have to be every night. I mean, they have devotions for every day leading up to to Christmas Day. I cannot recall a year in which we did every single night. Night, okay? So let me relieve you of that guilt early on. That you, that, that, that's fine. Skip whatever you need to uh, to be able to make it work, but I'll e- email that out, or um, you'll see in the weekly email, and then I'll try and post something about it this week, too, uh, on our Facebook page about resources for Advent stuff. But if you come to be a part of the series, we're going to talk about it as well. So that's an important thing. So inside of your program's a note sheet. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of things I'm talking about today, so if you want to get everything that's on the screen on your phone, you can text the word notes to 97,000 on the bottom. Um, but Advent is an important time because Advent—the word Advent means arrival or anticipation of an arrival—and Christmas is all about anticipation. We've been anticipating Christmas uh, since about Halloween, right? I mean, that's when the, that's when the decorations start to show up. That's when the the Costco store has like the section that's with the trees and the wreaths and the gifts and all that good stuff. Uh, and it's the and It's the holiday that is most anticipated on all levels. Um, we anticipate christmas more than any other holiday in our secular calendar and the thing about christmas is there's so much crossover from the secular message of christian of christmas as there is from the religious side of christmas like we find ourselves saying the same thing almost for the like for sometimes for the first time, we're like, oh my gosh, like really, we do believe joy to the world. Like we we do believe you go to Starbucks, you go to Macy's or whatever, you're going to see messages like do good and be generous and goodwill towards men and peace on earth. And we're all like, yes, yes, this is great. We, my wife and I watched the, uh, lighting of the Rockefeller tree, um, this last week. And, uh, while it's being lit, they, I mean, right? The the show is like an hour long. It's 57 minutes of performers and then like two minutes of the tree and then one last minute of commercials. That's how it works out. And when the tree comes on, it's um, five miles of lights on one tree. True story. Five miles of of lights. And then they, they sang the song, Joy to the World. Um, kind of as like this overture, basically, while the, the lights come on. It's like this super emotional moment. Enjoy to the World, I don't know if you know this, is one of the most theologically rich songs, hymns that are out there. Like, it's so dense with like deep, crazy stuff that, like, I, that, that doesn't, that probably wouldn't get airtime. At any other point in the year, and yet we sing this, and we we we, we see this, we hear this, we sing this together. We part- it's like a very participatory song. Everybody knows it, even if they're not really religious. It's 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 rich. It's amazing. And so I wanted to look specifically at as a part of this series the like four common. We're saying the same things, but why? but like check your motives, check your sources, go deeper. I think that the world communicates like, so candle one or week one or whatever you want to call it is this idea of be generous, um, be, uh, be, give gifts um, or, or be rich in good deeds towards other people, especially people who are less fortunate than you. That's a very common theme at Christmas. And it's very true. It's true for Christianity as, as a whole, but especially true at Christmas time. And so I, I really want to Say when you see that, when you experience that feeling at Christmas time during this season of of be generous, um, then I, I want us to go. Yes, but why? Because gener- It's easy to be generous at Christmas. There's um, you're going to get emails from any sort of nonprofit that you've given your email address to over the last few years, it's going to happen on that week leading up to Christmas. Uh, and even the week after, like a, a few days after Christmas, reminder, year in tax giving, and it, it time, the timing of it and our tax code and our American way of doing things is very, like, it makes sense, but December is the most generous time of the year. And so um, I... Uh, the message, I'm giving it away, is I want you to be generous, but yes, but why? Why at Christmas, does it even make even more sense from a Christian standpoint to do this? So, in order to do that, I want to start off by talking about the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity, God became one of us and dwelt among us. That is the message of Christianity. If you get lost about what Christianity is about, if it's about ethics and being nice and loving your neighbor as yourself, and it's kind of about this whole Jesus and God thing and, and New Testament, whatever, the heart of it, the actual thrust of all of it is that God, whatever it is that's out there, made himself known through the person of Jesus, came known not on a chariot, not on a horse, not as an adult, not as a king, not as a ruler or a dictator or a a tyrannical figure or whatever, but as as a child and really made his presence known among us. John, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote one of the gospels. He wrote the fourth gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, He wrote his last. He wrote his, even though three already stories about the teaching of the person of Jesus were already out there. And he wrote his probably at a really old age. He's like, I'm about to die, but I don't want to let these stories die with me. Let me tell you about the person that I knew who was Jesus. And when he starts off his letter to be able to describe the person of Jesus, he says in chapter one, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when you read your scripture, that word, word, the word, word, is capitalized with a capital W. And the reason is because he's pulling a Greek term that says the Logos made himself, became flesh, and made himself known and dwelt among us. Logos in that time was this idea that for those people who believe that they were they were that they were deist, like something is out there. There's some sort of ultimate reason, they would call it providence. They would say something exists outside. And, and Christianity's claim is that something that you think created something, but maybe just kind of like set it and forget it, and he doesn't really interact with today's society that that ever-present omnipresent the-present being thing made himself known through Christ. Therefore we should learn what he has to say and follow his steps and follow his pattern for doing life. That is the message of Christianity that John starts off with quickly and then Um, John writes about, he captures this prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17, several chapters later, right before he's arrested, crucified, does all that kind of stuff. John chapter 17, he's in a garden and he begins to pray and that prayer is collected for us. And in that prayer, Jesus makes a comment about having finished the work that you gave me to do. It's a prayer to God. And he basically says, having finished the work that you gave me to do. Listen, what is that thing? What is he talking about? What, what, what do you think the mission of Christ was? And, and I really do think he came to take the guesswork out of God. That we no longer have to live with this, you know, unknown, this kind of like ambiguous, this ever free-flowing idea. Of, well, you think it's this, and you think it's this, and we we don't really know. And there's just like this agnosticism towards God. He says, "Listen." I came to take the guesswork out of God. I didn't claim to have the best explanation of God. He claimed to be the best explanation of God. We no longer have to wonder what God is like. Christianity said, we know what God is like. We can see Jesus. And the best thing too about it was that Jesus didn't come to show us um, who God was like as much as he showed us whom God he liked as well. A big piece of his message was, this is what he looks like, and here's who he likes. And it included everybody. It did not just exclude, uh, it it was not just exclusionary towards the Jews. It was every single person, Jew, Gentile, he would say to his disciples, his last words, listen, take this message, take this teaching, take this message of of love to the Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. This is a message for everyone. This is joy to the whole world joy to the entire world. And you and us, me, us living today, living in in, in modern day America, we have these notions of what God is like. Listen. Even if you're not religious, even if somebody like bribed you to come with lunch afterwards, or or you're doing this at a, as a favor to a friend, we're glad that you're here. But you you probably, like most Americans, have a notion about God, even the God that you don't necessarily believe in, or or are impartial to it, or whatever he exists. But whatever. So so does uh, so, so does the president somewhere. So does all of these things. I, I know that New York exists. I haven't been there, but you know what? We we kind of that's our attitude towards God sometimes. But in In that same sense, we believe some things about that God. We believe that God is love. We believe that God loves everybody. We believe that everybody matters to God. Those are notions, common notions that we have about God. My question is, though though you believe that, where did those beliefs come from? Why do you believe those things about the God that you kind of believe in? We, I think that those came specifically from this advent of Jesus, this arrival of Jesus on this planet, because the world that Jesus came into didn't have these viewpoints of God. Pre-Christianity, the attitude towards the gods or God was pretty negative, pretty passive. God, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks kind of toyed with people, did not expect much from their people, and did not really have anything to do with them anyways. He was not interactive. He was not all loving. He was basically indifferent, or they were indifferent. They were, um, uh, they were not accessible, and they tended to use people to their own benefit. If you provided something for them, then they were ad- that would be advantageous to you. But in- if you experienced suffering or pain in life, it was because you angered them in some way. And so you better get right with them. The culture that Jesus came onto the scene with, the culture that Christianity shows up in, is also a slave culture. And in a slavery culture that devalues everyone because everyone is on is one string of bad luck away from slavery. In a culture like this, people didn't have intrinsic value as a person. They had economic value. As long as you were useful to me, you had value. As long when you become no longer useful. There is no value. That's the approach that the gods had towards people. That's the approach that people had towards people. And if you owed me debts, if you fell into bankruptcy and owed and I lended you money or I, you know, I rented things out to you and you owed me, you would become a, my slave. And, and different than the civil slavery stuff that we went through as a nation back in the 1800s, this was different. This was like forced employment, sometimes for life. You would owe this to me people were uh, people were constantly viewed for the through a lens of economics what kind of things can you value for me what kind of ways can you bring me value and when jesus comes on the scene when jesus makes his presence known through the story of christmas it changes it it that it's viewed in a different way. It's not viewed in that way. They, a lot of times in, in that part of the world or in that culture as well, in these, in these ancient times, they operate, and even sometimes today, in a caste or karma type system where you kind of do good things and good things happen to you. And if you do bad things, then you probably, or the reason that you're experiencing bad things is probably because you did bad things and you probably deserve it. God favors the wealthy. God favors the people in positions of authority God favors those with opportunity. Poverty, illness is a sign of God's disfavor. Constantly. Even this shows up in Scripture. There's a story that is recorded by some of the gospel writers where uh, a young man is, is uh, introduced to Jesus. And one of the comments from one of the bystanders is, so question for you, Jesus, this, this kid was born blind. Um, is it his fault or his parents' fault or is it like a family of origin thing? What's the result of this? Why? Why would they even ask that question? What's the backdrop of that question? The backdrop of that question is, the reason he's like this is because somebody did something to make God angry and then God allowed this to take place. And Jesus, when he would interact, he would say, no, 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 no. You've got it all backwards. You've got it all messed up. That's not how this whole thing works. And he had compassion on people. In a world where you got what you deserved... In a world where if that's how you're currently living, it's probably because you did something to deserve that, compassion really is unnecessary. The logical conclusion of a, of a society like that is I don't need to have compassion on you. You're simply getting what you deserved. And Jesus continually showed compassion. And along came a rabbi from Galilee who everywhere he went, he elevated everybody's dignity. Really, the spirit, the things that you love about the spirit of Christmas show up because Jesus showed up on the scene. All of those things about goodwill towards men and generosity to the world and doing nice things for others and expecting nothing in return. The comments that I have or the the, um, thesis of today or this entire series is it has a source and the source goes back beyond the, like, the social recognition of Christmas, or hey, let's make this a Christmas holiday, and we should talk about being generous so that people buy our gifts, and it's like this commercial thing. No, no, no. It started a long time before that. Jesus shows up on the scene. He elevated everyone's dignity that he came into contact with. He elevated the status of women. He elevated the status of the poor. He elevated the status of the physically weak. When we look at stories like the Good Samaritan, we're going to look at two things, two categories. One, his teachings, and one, his interactions. One, the things he said, and then two, the things that he did, because it's important to look at not only what people say, but what they do, because what they do justifies or validates or invalidates really what they they say. So in order to do that, one of his teachings is this teaching of the Good Samaritan. Remember this story? He says, well, there's a man who's walking along the road one day, and he says, once upon a time, it's a fable, it's a story, it's, it's not real, it didn't actually physically happen, but let me tell you the ethics involved in this. He gets beat up, um, and he's left to die on the side of the road. A couple of people walk by him, religious leaders, priests, the pastors of that day, Jewish people, they all walk by him, the hero of the story. Is somebody that you did not want to be the hero of the story? He looks at them, and he says, and then a Samaritan walked along, and everybody's going, I know what he's going to do. He's probably going to step on him. He's going to check his pockets if there's anything good in there, and he's going to leave. And he's like, no, 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 He throws him on the back of his donkey, bandages his wounds, and he takes him to a hospital. They're like, ah, they didn't like this story. This would be the equivalent of Republicans hearing that the hero of the story is a Democrat and vice versa. You know what I mean? We don't want that to be the way that the story goes. And then Jesus concludes the story by saying, so then who do you think is your neighbor? If you've heard heard it said that love your neighbor as yourself, who's your neighbor? Jesus would say, it's not the people who look like you or think the same things as you. Let me elevate the status and the dignity of others and show you that it goes beyond that. Your neighbor is anybody who has a need that you can meet. That's your neighbor. That's who you're called to do. Listen, he's changing the structures of this day. The reason that you get all fired up around Christmas time when people have stories about doing kind things for others, and you hear these stories about how this family went through this ordeal, and now at Christmas time, it's really easy to bring support, and we have a giving tree, and we've all got all this, and it just, it feels good to you. The reason it feels good to you, the source of that comes from back here, because prior to Jesus, compassion was, why would you have compassion? They're getting what they deserve. There's no such thing as bad luck. It's called bad karma. They made the gods angry There's some secret hidden sin that we don't know about, and if we help them out, all we're doing is allowing them to languish in their misery and justify their in their errors and and bad way of living. So we're not gonna do that. The reason you love Christmas is because of this, that Jesus elevated the dignity and the humanity of every single person. He talked about how compassion was an expression of strength and not weakness an expression of strength, to have compassion on people was to do this. So he goes onto this this mountaintop one day, this sermon on the mount, and he begins to teach to them, and he processes through all of these, do this, and happy is the person that does this, and happy is the person. And one of the teachings on there is to, to, to love your neighbor as yourself, to do good to somebody who could never do good for you. To give yourself away, not So that somebody owes you, or that they that that you're living with like, or they live with this debt that that you have, or that now now you know you've got this in your back pocket for for a, a future opportunity. No, no, not that just to live in that way, the, this story of the trilogy of lost things. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus goes through a set of three parables. All three things are lost. There's something, then it got lost. There's another thing, it got lost. The last one is the son who goes away and he finds himself lost. It's, we know it as the prodigal son. So those are the, this is the trilogy of lost things. And it talks about how the person who ever lost a thing goes on a search and a hunt for this thing, not to punish them, but to find them. He goes, listen, this is not God seeking you out so that you'll get what you deserve. He says, the father waited for the son. And when he saw him a long way off, he ran towards them and berated him for going off and doing his own. No, no, no. Ran towards him and threw his arms around his son and put the signet ring on his finger and threw a feast for his son. The message being, listen, It's not about paying them back. It's about winning them back. Sinners are not to be tracked down and punished. They're to be tracked down and loved on. This is, listen, this is brand new stuff, man. This is all different. There's a story about the widow's mite. He's at church one day. He's at the temple with his disciples. And in that time, they would have like these things up at front and Part of the service would be coming up and doing the, the offering towards, uh, you know, people would be generous towards the temple. They would give a percentage of their income towards this to be able to facilitate the management of the temple, but also then to be generous to the people who need it. The wealthy would be given uh, money so that the poor could have some things, and uh, it was—it became this big showmanship thing. They would do it in front. See, we we make it as passive as possible. We have these blue bins at the back that you can walk through. I grew up in a church where it was like um, a bucket, or it wasn't a bucket. It was like this bar thing with this little bag in between. You pass it down the rows, and there'd be a there'd be a time in the service where my dad or somebody in a pastoral position would be like, "Now, friends." Now, friends, we're going to take an right now, right? And they'd pass this thing down. And I remember as a kid, you know, I don't, I mean, I didn't even own a wall. I had no, it was always like this awkward. Let me, And I would usually have to sit in the front row because uh, that's just where pastor's kids had to sit in that time. And nobody ever sits in the front. It would be like this. You know what I mean? So then I'd have to get up from here and walk it all the way over here. And I'm just like, you know, and I'm not putting anything. And sometimes I would fake it. Like I'd have my hand, I'd be like this. I'd stick my hand down in there and just let it go. Huh. <laughs> you've done that before, right? Um, and so we give you that option. We're like, just drop everything in the bins at the back. You're like, good, I, I, I'm not, I haven't given. <laughs> so anyways, so we, we, we understand that. So Jesus is sitting there one day, and these people, they made this big show about what they would give. They'd come and they'd give a hundred bucks, but they'd give it in all singles. And they'd be like making it rain in the offering bucket, like, hey, everybody, woo, check this out, ah, Right? And uh, Jesus is like, see, that, that's, so they've, they've got every, every good thing that comes from giving. They've just received it all. They got this like public recognition. Oh my goodness. He's so generous. She's so generous. Uh, and that's enough. And, that, and that's it. And he said, look at this, look, watch this, this widow, look at this woman who has nothing, right? The widows in scripture were like uh, identified as the poorest of the poor, right? They, they had no source of income in that time. And they often lived off of nothing other than the generosity of a, a family member or a friend or the church community itself. And she comes up and she drops a couple of coins in, uh, in, in the bucket, equivalent to like 50 cents in the bucket. And he's like, oh my goodness, did you guys see that? And they're like, yeah, but she doesn't have anything. So that's all right, you know? And he's like, no, did you see that? That was amazing. He, pr- he comments on her faith. He comments on her generosity and she says, she gave more than he gave. He gave like out of his extra, she gave everything that she had. She, he elevated this. He didn't look at it in terms of through the lens of economics. He's, he, the disciples weren't like, well, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but $200 is more than 50 cents and we should talk to you about math sometimes. He's like, no, 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 it's not about that. I'm looking at it from a different standpoint. I, don't, I refuse to look at people through the lens of economics and how useful they are to me but through the dignity of who they are as an individual made in my sight. His interactions with the Samaritan woman um, at, at a well one day had this, uh, this, um, th- this, this story that goes on about um, how he showed up in the middle of the day. She's out there. She's got her bucket. She's drawing water from a well. She goes out there in the middle of the day, probably because she wants to avoid a crowd and avoids and wants to talk to people. She probably is known in that town as as having a backstory, kind of a you know, oh, one have you heard about you know one of those people and she's there, and Jesus shows up, and not only does he talk to a Samaritan, he's a Jew, you're not supposed to do that. She's a woman, he's, he's a, a man, not supposed to do that. Not, not, there's so many social faux pas that go on. An unorthodox, elevated treatment of women in this way. Sick people, sick people, they, well, again, they got what they deserve. There's a reason that they're sick. He approached them, elevated them, and instead of getting himself sick, he made them well. Tax collectors, they had their own category in that society. They had like all in the list of, of what you could be, they were below sinners. Like they'd be like, you see in the scripture, sinners and then tax collectors. They don't, sinners are like, we have standards. We don't even want to be known with them, okay? He, he not only talks to them, he invites one of them into his circle. He approaches Matthew one day and says, leave your tax collector boot. leave all of that. Come follow me. Matthew says, I'm in. And Jesus says, we're going to your house. You're going to throw a big, giant party, and we're going, to inf- we're going to invite a bunch more people into the wider circle known as what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And all the other disciples are going, ah, if people knew, this doesn't even make any sense, Jesus. No. If my mama hears that I'm hanging out with tax collectors, there's like the cooties. They got, ah, I just, this is foolish, Jesus. You're not, you're not thinking through all of this when you look at the person of Jesus through his interactions and his teachings. He elevated the dignity of every individual. He refused to view them through the lens of economics. And he treated them as if they were made in his image and then therefore rightfully deserved to be treated like a human being fashioned in his image. And that type of a mentality became contagious. You see, when the church got started, and we read about the church getting started in the book of Acts, it's the book that comes after the gospel stories. It's called The Actions or the Acts of the Apostles. And the, as the early church gets going, we read about the very first church fight. It didn't take long for the church to have their first fight, right? Kind of like every newlywed couple. They're like, oh, we're never going to fight, right? And you're like, yeah, on the honeymoon, you fought. You know what I mean? So, this is, this is in the honeymoon phase of their life, of, or their, uh, yeah, the life of the church. They have their first fight. You know what the first fight's about? Their first fight was that some people felt like the disciples were spending too much time feeding widows and not enough time teaching the people. That was their first fight. Listen, disciples, you guys have like this inside scoop on the person of Jesus, Quit wasting your time. We will find, it's not that we don't care about widows. We will find other people who have not been with Jesus to take that role over. We would rather have you in positions of teaching and authority in this way. That's their, that was their first kind of argument. And okay, well, this is how we're gonna do this thing. The, the early church, this is what they were known for. No strings attached, compassion and generosity became the hallmark of the first century church. And if you look at the establishment of the church throughout history, this has been true. No strings attached, compassion and generosity became the hallmark of the first century church. Listen, in, in church history, what we read, what we read about are stories of Christians who, when plagues would come into a city and really, honestly, devastate an entire city, people for their own safety would flee the city and go into the suburbs until this thing was killed off or died off or it was contained. And who stayed behind were Christians to be able to care for the sick. They believed that that there was life beyond this life. And that if they could invest their life for the sake of others, um, it would be worth it to be a martyr for standing for the beliefs. And so they're the ones that took care. I read a book a a, a while back called The Rise of Christianity by a guy named Rodney Stark. Um, He's a sociologist at at UW, and he's not even a Christian. And he writes, how how do you think, it doesn't make sense for Christianity to make it out of the first century, like this new religion that didn't have a lot of things going for it. It wasn't a, a result of coming out of like the popular uh, side of things. It wasn't a result of some imperial king who decided to come up with his own religion. It started in the backwaters of Jerusalem. I mean, this was the backwaters of the Roman empire with no influence. How did it survive the first century? And he says, one of the main influences is that when people got sick, there's massive plagues that took, that begin to take over towns and Christians stayed behind And help these people, and many of them would recover. And when you've been taken care of by somebody who believes something significant, and because of those convictions, you did that. That is infectious. Those people, if they survived and they made it through, many of them became Christians, and their message of compassion and generosity, unmitigated generosity, began to spread like wildfire. And people would criticize them for their beliefs, but admire them for their compassion and their generosity. In the Roman Empire, it was legal. If you had a child and didn't like how that child turned out, whether it was a physical deformity or um, if you just weren't, uh, didn't like the gender, typically little girls. It, it, they didn't have ultrasounds to be able to be like, oh, I know where this is at, right? Uh, they, a child would be born, and if they didn't want the child, it was fully within their legal rights to set the child out and expose them to the natural elements, a.k.a. leave them to die, whether in the, the edge of the forest or outside on their front doorstep. And legally, what their thought was is, I'm not killing this child. The elements are, whether it's weather or a wild animal or something, and so I'm leaving them to their fate and allowing their natural fate to control themselves. And Christians would be like, you can't do this. So they would go to the edge of the forest and rescue these children. They're like, we don't, we don't have enough money to feed our own family, but you know what? We, we value the dignity of life too much to allow this to happen. This is a common story that these Christians kept, these growing families, the people, kids would just start showing up and they're like, I didn't even know you were pregnant. How do you have four kids now? You know what I mean? They're like, we, well, we've been... Taking care of other people's kids. So, when Constantine became a Christian, when he converted publicly as a Roman emperor to to Christianity in about four, in, in the fourth century, right? And Christianity began to have a major influence on Roman imperialism. One of the very first laws established under that rule was all right, no exposing your kids. To the, to the elements anymore. That is considered murder and a capital offense. You can no longer do that. Why? One, we're sick of taking care of your kids. And two, we value the human dignity, the, the dignity of every single human life, regardless of their ability to be able to talk through things or reason through things. This is like, no, no, no. We have so much compassion in this way. We are refuse to allow this to happen. So... The conclusion: When you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the actions of the apostles, when you look at church history, while we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. While we may be criticized, while people may have legit criticisms of, I just cannot believe that that you would ever believe that somebody would die, not stay dead. And then, you know, establish this whole relationship. I just can't get my mind wrapped around that. Fine, legit. But, man, good grief. Their ability to be compassionate and generous with no strings attached, you gotta love them for that. I want that said about Eastlake in our community. I would love for the Tri City Herald to be like, listen. I mean, if you're not into the whole Christianity thing and, you know, you're not into the whole Bible thing, then you may not love what they do on Sunday mornings, but good grief, it would be tragic for our community if Eastlake shut its doors. It would be a, we, there would be a, a felt loss in the lifeblood of our community if they did not exist. While we may be criticized for what we believe, we should be famous for our compassion and our generosity. Why? Because this is the pattern our Savior left us. And it's easy at Christmas to buy into this. The thing that you love about Christmas, the generosity that seems to be culturally acceptable worldwide and really a driving force of this is a message that's at the heart of Christianity. Everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or Not. And that is true. It's not compassion towards those who are easy, to whom it's easy to be compassionate about. Compassion towards those who vote the same as you, look the same as you, believe the same things as you. Compassion towards those who at some point could repay you. Nope, none of that. Everybody matters to God whether God matters to them or not. Now, what I've been talking about is very theory-driven, okay? We can all assent to this. Even if you're um, not religious, um, you'd be like, I, I like this part about whatever you're talking about. I like this part of the church. Man, Brenton, should, this should be... Why isn't every church at this time, in this time period of of, uh, of the season of our, our our culture or whatever, talking about something like this? Um, that makes sense. But I, I, at the risk of it being like an, a mental assent, there's also like something we got to do about this you guys. This is important. This is a this is not just it's not good enough to be like that's really good. You you and I have got to do and, and what's benefit uh, beneficial for us is that specific instruction is given in the life of the church. So fast forward from like a historical outlook on what happened with Jesus towards the actual actions of the church. We get a lot of the instructions about how a church operates through what's called the letters of the New Testament. Paul would be a, one of the guys who went and started a bunch of churches, would leave and, and uh, allow those to kind of run themselves and would write correspondence back and forth to each other. One of them uh, was, those churches was run by one of his protégés whose name was Timothy. And Timothy had his own church, and Paul writes this letter about specifically how to run their church. Lots of they're calling them the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters, or here's what it means to be a good pastor amongst these people. in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, we get our marching orders to how to live all of this out. This idea of compassionate and generosity, and that's what we're being known for. Then he says, All right. Let me, let me put this feet on the ground, boots on the ground. What does this look like in our real life? First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, 18. Here it is on the screen. Command those who are rich in this present world. Now stop right there, because right now we have categories in our mind of who's rich and who's not rich, and we don't feel like we're rich. And so this is really good for my uncle, who invested in Apple a long time ago. And you know has done. That. this is good for my neighbor, who works at Hanford and makes a bunch of money, and I don't know what he does. So he's he's rich and he should do something in this present world. We we oftentimes pause, mentally exclude ourselves from what comes afterwards because we don't feel like we're rich. And every time around this that time of year, I have to I do some message typically like this and remind you that you're actually rich. You don't feel rich. And the reason you don't feel rich is because you don't have a lot of margin in your finances, and that's your fault, not God's fault. So here's the deal. You are you are rich. If you operate with 100%, 101% of your income, then you're not going to feel rich. You're going to feel stressed. And this time of year, I remind you, you've probably never made more money than you do right now. I mean, that's not true for everybody, but for a lot of people, you're like, I've never made as much money as I do right now. And I feel more, I feel constantly not rich. I feel stressed about it. And the question that, I, that you would have in this is, um, why, why is that? And my answer to that is, well, you're not really good at being rich. So here's the benefit of this. <laughs> You are, first is in a recognition that I am rich, right? Because what, a, one third of the world's uh, population lives on less than $2 a day. Listen, $2 a day, that's like your cell phone plan that you, pay, you you have monthly payments on your cell phone that are probably close to that, okay? You are rich, it's an awareness that I am, so what do I do about it? Great news for us, Paul gives advice to rich people. Here's what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world, okay? Whoop, whoop, all eyes here. We're, this is us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Paul says, I have a special message for rich people. I want you to get better at being rich. I want you to start giving like a rich person, serving like a rich person, and leveraging your opportunities for the sake of other people. And the benefit of Christmas time is at no point are you more culturally positioned to do this than at this time. That there are more opportunities now than the other 11 months of the year. Here's a couple of things that we probably should not be proud of as Americans and as a society in general, all right? Number one is this picture right here. Sugar cookie toast crunch. You guys, sugar cookies for breakfast. We should not be proud of this. Why are we doing this? Okay? This is an attempt to lighten the mood a little bit because I'm talking about money in church and everybody hates that. Number two, the other thing that we shouldn't be proud of and far more relevant to our topic at hand is this idea uh, that as a person's income goes up, the percentage that they give away goes down. This is true across the board, red, yellow, black, and white. Everybody in America, as our income goes up, our percentage that we give away goes down. Rich, In fact, when, you, when uh, they did a study at the uh, end of the depression that we had in, what, 2009, and they, they looked at it, and the percentage of poor people who gave went up, but the percentage of rich people who gave went down, as it increases, this is the typical natural outflow for us. We may give the same amount that we've always given, and at Christmas time, you've got little pockets that you always give to. This is what we give to. This is what we do. This is what we do. And when was the last time you reevaluated and be like, you know what? I've been doing that much since 2005 when I was making X amount of dollars or whatever. So my challenge to you is to learn and appreciate this Christmas, at the very beginning, what it would mean, what it would look like, or ask yourself the question, what would it look like for me to be a really good rich person this Christmas season? And for some of you, you're going, but seriously, though, I'm not rich. Um, I'm, I'm broke, and I've, I've got nothing. Okay, great. Then my thing for you is think about this, do what you can, and learn what it means to be rich when someday that you are, uh, practice being a good rich person now. So I want you, and this is not a plea for our church, okay? Listen to me. This is not, and lo and behold, we are doing a year-end giving campaign, and you can give to, you know, put more lights on this room or something like that. No, it's nothing like that. I know that you are going to get plenty of opportunities this Christmas to be generous to others. Some of them may be uh, through your workplace. Some of them may be like this family tradition thing that you have always done. Your family did this and it makes sense for you. Uh, some of you really don't know. I, like, I, I, gosh, I, I don't even know what I would do. Here's my recommendation to you. Uh, we have done the vetting process for you. There's a page on our website called eastlaketricities.com slash wearlove. It's our wearlove page. These are nonprofit ministries that are doing really good things in the community. We decided a long time ago, listen, we're not gonna have a food bank. We're not gonna have a, a little fund for uh, people who need... need Hell, We're not going to do any of that. We're going to try and do church. We don't typically like it. And then we're going to partner with people who are already killing in all these different areas. And we're going to give them money, and we're going to give them platform time, and we're going to advertise for them, and we're going to resource them with volunteers, and we're going to do everything we can to make their mission a win. So we've already done the work for it. Uh, and it, we, it, it, I would love for you to go on the website, find one of them, go to their site directly, give directly to them, or if you want, you can go to this website here, electricity.com/year slash giving, or if you just go to eastlaketricity.com slash give, you'll see a fund tab that you can pull it down. If you give to that fund, 100% of the money that goes into that fund will go out into our community and around the world to do good things for people here and, and beyond this place. So I... And the, the point is not a bigger bank account or a bigger cushion or whatever in savings for East Lake Tri-Cities. I don't care about that. We are supported generously by people who prioritize this and shift their resources to make this a place where they feel comfortable bringing their friends and family and themselves to be able to grow in God. We're fine. I, I want this for you because generosity is a big deal, and I want you to be a good rich person. And at Christmas, it just seems like an easy time to talk about it. It just it feels so natural, and I really I really want us to practice being rich because I want people to look and be like I can't buy into what they talk about and what they believe, but my goodness are they generous! My goodness are the walls that they, that they give so freely they give um, they give. Towards people that don't believe the same things as, as them and probably never will, but that does not factor in to what they do. They're not given with hidden motives. They're not given with secondary things. They're not giving uh, and then getting something in return as a result of doing it. They're just, they're just generous. That is my prayer for you. It's my prayer for myself. Our devotion to God was to be demonstrated and authenticated through our generosity to other people. Our generosity to people demonstrates and authenticates our devotion to a God who, when he was on this planet, did the exact same thing and provided us with a pattern by which to follow. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us not only see this, but do this, this Christmas, that we would, um, we would realize that we have been blessed, that we would live with the recognition of that, the humility that comes along with that, and the responsibility to be a blessing to others. Father, we pray that you would open up doors of opportunity for us to be generous this Christmas, and to be really, really good rich, rich people, rich in good deeds, rich in acts of service, rich in leveraging whatever we have for the sakes of others. Give us wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.